spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Possibly the only entity left that's not trying to be taken over by Disney. It's episode 192 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham and so happy that we have our spoiler-filled review of Happy this week. Of course, talked to Patrick Fischler last week. This week, going to give you my thoughts on the first episode of the show. Our guest this week, Blair Redford, who plays Thunderbird on The Gifted, of course, their winter finale is going to be coming up this Monday. It's part two of last week's show. Of course, you know I'm going to ask him about stuff that happened on last week's shows. We'll talk about that and a heck of a lot more with him. And so much to cover on this week's show, as always. So let's get right to it. A couple of new comics to talk about next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Patrick Fischler from Happy on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to open up that long box, crack open that laptop, or fire up the tablet because it's time for what we're reading, no matter what you're reading on. And we're going to head to Dark Circle Comics, of course, the imprint of Archie Comics, for Mighty Crusaders number one. That's right, the latest incarnation of the Mighty Crusaders, which is going to be written by Ian Flynn. Art's done by Kelsey Shannon, Matt Herms on the colors, and Jack Morelli does the letters. Now, I will say this. Fans of the very first... Crusaders team, Mighty Crusaders team, you're going to get a little something for yourself here. I mean, you've got, what, 50 years of history on the Mighty Crusaders here, and then you had the new Crusaders. If you had any incarnation of this, it's kind of a little something for everyone. Now, the team's actually comprised of the Shield, Jaguar, the Comet, Steel Sterling, Firefly, and Darkling. There's also another team member that gets added in this book. I don't want to spoil this. Of course, these are always spoiler-filled, spoiler-free comic reviews, so I don't want to spoil who the new recruit is, but it's somebody that you'll recognize if you're a fan of these comics. Now, Joe Higgins, I can tell you, the original S.H.I.E.L.D. is kind of the leader of the team for the government agency that runs the team. And one of the things I like about this book, actually, is that these aren't just heroes. They're, they're like celebrities. I mean, they're very much out in the media and it's they're making news and they make no apologies of it really i mean it's it's almost like you have to worry about the media spin just as much as you do actually defeating crime and they they face a very unique villain in this first book i will say and it's it's very much villain of the week i i can tell you that it's it's not like we get to see a lot of the main villain in this first book but we do kind of get introduced to something intriguing in this book, something very ancient. Again, I'm not going to spoil what that is, but it's, it's very eye-opening and very interesting what could be happening. But this book just felt very, I don't know, for some reason it felt very 80s to me. And even the, the art gave it that whole, I know that Kelsey Shannon has uh, worked with Josie and the Pussycats, but it, it had that kind of look to it for me. It was very Archie. And I know that I've said that before when I've reviewed Archie books, of course, this being Dark Circle Comics. But that's the way it looked to me, but that's what made it so great for me to read. One of the things that made it so great was that it had that look. And one of the things that was also good about this book is that it's the struggle for the new S.H.I.E.L.D. to lead a team not just of new recruits, but recruits that have been there, done that. So her being new herself, 
in a certain manner of speaking, she kind of has to balance everybody together and make them a team. And that's one of the main themes of this first issue. So it just felt right. It felt like a good reintroduction to the Mighty Crusaders. And now I will say that if you're not familiar with the team at all, maybe this is your first exposure to this team or these characters, you will not feel left out. I mean, of course, you're not going to know what everybody's powers are or anything, and maybe a few things will catch you by surprise. But I think that it actually lends to that, though. This book will actually give you, if you have no experience with these characters, enough intrigue, I think, to make you want to keep going. So maybe you're interested in Darkling's powers, or maybe you want to know more about what's going on with Firefly or Steel Sterling. One of these characters at least will probably make you come back and find, want to find out more about what's going on. Plus, they, it, I love the fact that it was very much a little bit of a tease of who the main villain is going to be, or at least what direction we're going to be going with the main villain. So I, I'm glad that that wasn't revealed in the first issue. I like that there was, this was kind of a villain of the week thing. And then just kind of that meeting between the two shields in this book that I thought was very, very cool. So this was a pull for me. I can't wait to read more Mighty Crusaders. I'm glad that they brought it back. And I can't wait to see what's going to be going on with this new team and if they can work it all out. Another team up that we have this week is from DC Comics and IDW once again with Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number two. And it's issue number one of the second arc written by James Tynan the fourth. Freddie Williams the second on the art. Jeremy Caldwell on the colors. And Tom Napolitano doing the letters. Now, I've always said I'm a big Donatello fan. So I don't like it when people say that Donatello's the weak link. It makes me very upset. I don't know why. I've just always been very protective of Donnie over the years. But that's what this book kind of focuses on. And this is not a spoiler, by the way, because I'm pretty sure that this is in the the previews and all the, the, the promotions for this book. But, you know, Donnie actually feels like he's the weak link. And he knows that, you know, hey, Batman's smart. Batman can kick some ass, too. So, you know, why not seek out his help? And, you know, they've been traveling from dimension to dimension. They've been in Batman's world before. So Donnie's just trying to figure out how he can be a better team member and up his skills to the level of his brothers. And there's a reason for that. And, and again, I'm not going to go into what that is. There's a reason he feels the way he does in this particular moment. I mean, it's not like this hasn't reared its ugly head before. It's not like this is new ground that's being covered, per se. But this particular moment... Donnie feels the weakness, I guess you could say. It's, it's, it's the best part about it. It's, it's like this could have been the time where it came back to bite him. So he very much takes extreme measures, and it's very un-Donatello-like. You know, you expect Donnie to be the one that thinks things through and makes sure everything's planned out. That didn't quite happen here. And, you know, Batman's dealing with his own stuff, as always. And one of the characters that we're going to see in this book, again, not a spoiler because you should know by looking at the cover that Bane is going to be part of this story. But how Bane is a part of this story and one of the things that Bane discovers in this book as a Batman fan alone will make you go, whoa, that's not good. And where this is going to go from here is anybody's guess. So for the Bane intrigue alone, I'm going to keep reading this book. I can tell you that much right now. But... What happens as a result of what Donatello does makes it even that much more interesting. So right there at the end of the first issue, everything gets turned on its head. And you kind of wonder, 
whose side certain characters are going to be on in this, or is it going to be, and, and it does involve Bane, and what kind of Bane are we going to see as a result of what happens? And again, it's a big, big spoiler in this book. Not going to reveal that for you. I want you to discover it on your own, just like I did. I, I will say that, it, it, it's again, it was it was a pet peeve of mine that, you know, Donnie's the weak link kind of thing, and that very much gets pushed at in this issue. And I'm not mad at it. I actually, you know, it's it's hard not to kind of kind of nod along and go, yeah, all right, I understand where you're coming from. But at the same time, the angle that's being taken here, I think it's a very smart one by Tenen and the group. That that they're it's not being poked fun of. It's it's almost like a Donnie wants to improve himself, and why wouldn't you want to? improve yourself in any team setting, right? Freddie Williams art always solid. I always love his work in any book that he does, especially any time that it has to do with turtles. I just love the way that he draws the turtles. It's it's just and and this is not a knock on any other turtles artist because I think a lot of the turtles artists do a fantastic job over at IDW, but there's something that's just so refreshing about seeing and the way he draws Casey Jones too by the way. I think it's really really great. I mean, you see that on the cover as well. The way he draws him, I could I could read a Casey Jones book with Freddie Williams II on the art all day long, and I think that that would be amazing. So very intrigued, even just by the Bane story alone, about what's going to happen here. But the interaction between Donatello and Batman going forward, I think is going to be a really, really good one. So that's why another good week for me. Two pulls this week. Make sure you go out and pick up both the Mighty Crusaders number one from Archie Comics and Dark Circle and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Batman number one, the second arc, the first issue from DC Comics and IDW. It's going to do for what we're reading up next this week in Geek Tame, and it's time to see happy. Our spoiler-filled review is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Chin Han from Ghost in the Shell, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, we finally all got to see Happy on Sci-Fi. It was Wednesday at 10 o'clock. That's when the show airs. So time for my, for my spoiler-filled review of episode number one. Now, I will go into, go into this review saying this. I'm not going to spoil anything as it pertains to the Happy comic or graphic novel or whatever you might have read from the Grant Morrison adaptation. Not going to spoil anything from the comic itself. Just going to be talking about this one episode and that is it so far. Of course, Christopher Merloni plays Nick Sachs, who is a cop turned hitman turned just general asshole. Like, this is the best way that I could possibly put it. But the, at the same time, you look at Nick Sachs in this show, and yes, he is that. But at the same time, you kind of feel for him and kind of root for him. I don't know what it is about him. I don't know if it's a sarcastic sense of humor or just the way he carries himself. But you, you root for Nick Sachs, even though you feel like you're not supposed to. And the thing that I love about this character, too, is that he doesn't care whether or not he lives or dies. As a matter of fact, it's almost like he welcomes death. And it's, this is only from one episode that I'm giving you this observation. I've seen the first two, but I'm only going to give you my observations on this, this one. He seems like he wants to die. He doesn't care. He wants his life to be over. He doesn't care if his life continues or not. That's the crazy thing. And in this first episode, we see him walk into what you almost know is a trap. He's been hired to kill the Scaramucci brothers by someone. We haven't been told who as far as this episode. There's hints here and there at who it was, but we don't know for sure 
who it was in this episode. So it looks like this is going to be a massacre of epic proportions, right? And then he just comes out of it okay, unscathed, but not necessarily because he gets something from one of the Scaramucci brothers. It's a password of some kind. And that is basically sticking everybody and their brother on him. There's a bounty on his head now at this point from Mr. Blue, who's played by Richie Coster. And let me say, Richie Coster does a fantastic job as Mr. Blue in this episode in, 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 in the other episode as well. But this one, I mean, just the way he carries himself, it's almost like true mob boss slash kind of pretending to be a family man kind of guy. He plays the role so, so well. It's almost like this is a role he was meant to play. And that seems like that's kind of par for the course in this cast. But not only do we have that going on, we also have a little girl that gets kidnapped and we find out much more about her and her parents, I should say, later on in in the show. And she gets kidnapped by, I guess they're calling him Very Bad Santa. If you look it up on IMDb, it's Very Bad Santa. You want to talk about one of the creepiest villains I think I've ever seen on TV or movies. Very Bad Santa is just dirty, nasty, and creepy. Makes you feel uncomfortable every time He's on the screen. So then that brings us to Happy, who's supposed to find Nick, and Nick is supposed to help the little girl. Now, Pat Oswald. I mean, you want to talk about perfect. It's I, I don't want to say I see Happy and I see Pat Oswald, but it's just this overly optimistic, just you almost want to strangle him because he's just so energetic and, for lack of a better term, happy. And Patton Oswalt just plays that character so, so well. And when Nick sees Happy and Christopher Maloney, off the charts good in this episode. That whole scene where he sees Happy and is kind of wigging out and the paramedics are in the ambulance, have no idea what's going on, and only he can see Happy. It's just amazing. And this show, I'm going to say this before I even wrap this up. This is the craziest show maybe I've ever seen, and the most unique thing on television right now. Like Patrick Fischler said last week, whether you love it or you hate it, and there's no middle ground with happy, I will absolutely agree on that. You have to admit, this is the most unique show on television, and bravo to sci-fi for just letting them do what they want. Like this, This show is what it is. Let's present it in the way it's supposed to be. And that's exactly what they did. And before I get to Meredith McCarthy, who plays a big role on the show, I need to talk about Patrick Fischler and Smoothie. His interactions with Nick Sachs in this first episode, Smoothie's basically hired to get the password out of Nick, and then that way, you know, everything's good again. You don't have to worry about it anymore, anything getting out. Smoothie will get it. That's his job. The interaction between Nick Sachs and Smoothie is just my favorite part of this first episode. It's so crude and, and smoothie is just so vicious, but in a flat line way that again, almost makes you feel uncomfortable. It's like, how can somebody be that evil and just be that level about it? It's just so brutal. And, and, and to see the way he gets out of that, Nick Sachs gets out of that is insane. And then everything that follows after that, Patrick said he was afraid of the gifts from this. 
Like when Nick has the fire extinguisher after he takes out one of the guys. It's so crude and so nasty. But at the same time, I was thinking that when I saw that, all oh, the gifts. And then Patrick's reaction to it is smoothie. Oh my gosh. It's just unbelievable. It's funny. It's serious. It's uncomfortable, but it's supposed to be uncomfortable. And the way that Happy is kind of trying to help throughout this whole thing, and Happy doesn't necessarily approve of Nick's behavior either, which I think is really, really funny, so they have that kind of relationship as well. There's just so much to love about the show. And then you move on to Meredith McCarthy, who is a police detective, but, you know, there's something about her that doesn't seem right. It seems a little off. And we see her, we actually see her interacting with Mr. Blue at one point. And something is very uncomfortable about her. And, and she knows Nick. She's looked up to him, doesn't really anymore. But there's a connection there as well. And just the way that Millie Majernik plays this character, you just know that she's going to be really important going forward. But you don't know kind of what side she's on. It's almost like she's on her own side. And not in a selfish kind of way, but in a survivalist kind of way. So that's what kind of intrigues me about her character, is that she kind of is a lot like Nick in, in a lot of ways. Is that, and I don't think she really cares about her own well-being, but it's in a completely different way. And I think she's kind of struggling with what side she wants to be on as well. But she does have one weakness. I won't talk about that in this review. Definitely don't want to spoil that. And you'll find out what that is, more so in the second episode than the first one. So you'll definitely want to stick with this show to see that. But again, I don't want to go through every little scene shot for shot, but just the interactions and Christopher Maloney being absolutely brilliant in this show, whether it's with Happy or Smoothie or just basically anyone he encounters in this first episode. It's just fantastic. This might be Christopher Maloney's best performance ever. And I'm not sure that I expected that I would say that, when I before I saw Happy, but afterwards, just the way you see him work all these different angles and rises and falls of this character, not everybody can do that. Not anybody could have played Nick Sachs the way that Christopher Maloney does, and I think that that is one of the biggest reasons that this show is so amazing. Is that is it's Christopher Maloney, but then it's also Patrick Fischler's smoothie. It's also Richie Coster as Mr. Blue. There's so many people that put on put on just dead to rights performances on the show and then the way it's shot it's shot beautifully there's no they spare no expense for this show especially during that opening sequence which is almost like a mind trip on uh, from Nick Sachs it, especially then you could tell they're sparing no expense and they're really going for it with this show and sci-fi has done a really good job with that I mean with Winona Earp with the magicians they've upped their game so much and then you see them do this and it's a chance that they took. This absolutely positively was a roll of the dice from sci-fi when they first started doing this show. But the best thing they could have done was just kind of rub their hands together and say, you know what? Do what you want. We trust you. Do this the right way. And we know it's going to be a success. And that seems like that's exactly what they did. So, of course, for one episode, I'm not going to give a rating for a full show. All I'm going to say is see Happy. Watch Happy on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock Eastern on Sci-Fi. If you missed the first episode, find it on the Sci-Fi app, sci-fi.com, whatever you have to do to see the first episode of Happy if you missed it. Definitely do that in the second episode. You want to talk about the first episode being off the walls crazy? The second episode cranks it up 
even more and more craziness from Nick Sachs and Happiest. And one scene with Happiest specifically that will just have you laughing until your stomach hurts. I guarantee it. So that's my spoiler-filled review-ish of Happy on Sci-Fi. Up next, some nerd news to get to. So we'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is comic book writer Steve Orlando, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week we're avoiding a second extinction, and it's time for nerd news. Starting out with a little bit of trailer talk. Yes, the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom first trailer finally dropped. And I will say that once I first read the synopsis about the whole, you know, an island is going to explode and all of the dinosaurs are going to go extinct again. So Chris Pratt's character, Owen's going to follow Bryce Dallas Howard's character and go there and try to save the dinosaurs. And when I first heard that concept, I'm like, you know what? I don't know. This just doesn't sound like a good idea. Although then I see the trailer and yes, that is still very much true. But at the same time, There was another angle that was played here. You see a congressional hearing, and you see Dr. Ian Malcolm, of course. That is our boy right there, Jeff Goldblum, and he's testifying. And one of the very interesting points that was brought up in the trailer was, okay, so are these animals, these dinosaurs, afforded the rights as every other species as far as being saved? Now, I think that that's an angle that's very, very interesting that could be played in this movie. And, I mean, sure, maybe the idea of the second extinction, maybe that's corny. But if you look at it from that angle and you look at the social aspects and the questions of, well, if this was actually happening, where do we draw the line? And these are creatures that were created, not necessarily in natural way. So, you know, are they afforded the same rights? It's a very – it goes a lot deeper than you would think – If you want to look at it that way, you know what I mean? You could look at it from the angle of, you know, okay, that this is kind of dumb. Or you could take the other look at it and say, you know what, as as far as a social impact is concerned, this is a very interesting question that they could be dealing with. So how much that gets focused on here, I think, could make or break this second movie. Other than the fact that, I mean, the dinosaurs look a lot better. We, you know, we're going back to the animatronics a little bit here. So we don't get a whole lot of CGI, it doesn't look like. So the realism looks to be back in this movie. Other than that, you know, a lot of explosions, a lot of action. Of course, you know, we've got the relationship between Chris Pratt's character, Owen, and Blue, the Velociraptor. And, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard saying, you know, Blue's still alive. Blue's still out there. You raised her. And it's one of those things where, you know, you tug at the heartstrings a little bit and then you see them meet face to face. Although, if, if I will say anything, and this is a criticism of a lot of trailers, actually, is that, you know, we're seeing too much. You know, we're seeing the T-Rex kind of save the day at one point. We're seeing the first interaction with Blue. I mean, you're blowing that in the first trailer. I don't know if that's something that you really want to do here but I mean I guess it doesn't necessarily ruin the movie but it's like you know you could have saved that you don't save anything anymore that's one of the reasons I get so frustrated with trailers now is that you're giving me too much you know some of the most funny moments in certain movies are given away in trailers as well so that's why I'm you know I'm hesitant to look at trailers but you know I want to talk about them for you guys so of course I'm going to watch the trailers but I try to avoid everything after the first one to be honest just because I don't want it completely ruined for me, but I'm still looking forward to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom on June the 22nd. Netflix has a new show coming out on February the 2nd of 2018 called Altered Carbon. First trailer for that actually came out as well, and man, does this feel like Blade Runner. It really, really does. Basically, the story centers around the fact that 
they found out a way to transfer human consciousness into a new body. And they're calling them human sleeves, which is really creepy sounding. And I mean, you see it in the trailer too, and it's obviously creepy, but it's for like exclusive clientele. So, you know, the whole top 1% thing again, kind of, I guess, or maybe not depending on how the story goes. But there was a line in the trailer that really struck my attention. And it was living too, there's a danger in living too many times. You forget to fear death. And you see a lot of action, you know, a lot of armed individuals walking around. And we don't really have a good idea of what the actual storyline is going to be about beyond the whole human sleeves thing. But you can imagine that there's a problem there. Just like in Blade Runner, there was a problem there. And that, you know, do you want the sleeves to kind of take over? Or, you know, is there a an alternate is there an alternate consciousness that gets involved here because you're transferring from one body to another? Does something get lost and does something get kind of changed? Can you change aspects of your personality? They say you can have the body you always wanted. Obviously, you change your looks. That changes your personality, and that goes for anybody. And and that's not just you know looking better. It could also be looking worse. Depending on how you look, whether you like it or not, it changes your personality a little bit, I think. So there's a danger in that as well. So, And it looks like visually, this may be the most risky undertaking that Netflix has had as far as it looks like you're really pulling out all the stops to make this a visually striking sci-fi endeavors. So, I mean, they're throwing the cash out there. We've seen from their acquisitions before, they are not shy about throwing the cash around. So I'm very, very curious to see just how good Altered Carbon is in February. Here's something we shouldn't be surprised about at all. According to Variety, DC Films is getting a little bit of a shakeup or maybe a major shakeup. John Berg appears to be out as the person who is running the comic book film division. And now apparently he's going to be moving to more of a producer role with other movies within Warner Brothers. Doesn't look like he's going to be involved in the comic book projects. Now another guy that partnered up with Berg is Jeff Johns. Now he's expected to remain as chief creative officer of DC Entertainment, but may have more of an advisory role in the film division, of course, you know, he's involved a lot with the TV and comics and stuff like that. So it's not like Jeff Johns isn't doing a good job and it's not like he doesn't have a lot on his plate. So maybe having an advisory role wouldn't be the end of the world here. They're also thinking about moving DC films into the main building of Warner Brothers and not making it its separate entity. Marvel doesn't do that, but Sony does that. Fox does that. Take that for what it's worth, whether that would be a good idea or a bad idea. But you knew with the way that Justice League ended up, I mean, it just crossed $200 million domestically, which it should have done a long, long time ago. It's just a movie that lagged very far behind and a movie that I, I think never really had a chance. No matter how you feel about Justice League, whether you liked it or you didn't, you know, I was kind of middle of the road there. Didn't blow me away. Didn't hate it either. But, you know, I, I did enjoy it to a certain extent, but it's certainly not what it should have been. So can you can you just how long do you just sit on your rest on your laurels and just say, ah, we'll be fine. It's a comic book movie. No, I mean, they're going to make a little bit of a shakeup. It looks like they are going to hire somebody new for the role that John Berg was playing out for the, the role of the comic book film division head. And as far as who that's going to be. That's anybody's guess. I mean, there, there, there's a million names that you could throw out there, but it looks like Ben Affleck will be sticking around for the Flash solo movie and be part of the Flashpoint storyline, so maybe that'll alter some things. It's just, this. it was just time. This, this had to be done sooner or later. If you do it now, 
you're 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 getting out ahead of the game and you're not still stumbling through all the way past Aquaman and past the Flash movie and you know you want Wonder Woman 2 to be a winner as well so better to do this now get it out of the way and maybe you get the person you want that can write the ship and and I still don't think you want to be exactly like Marvel but you've got to find that happy medium of being yourself and clearly working within a formula that's been working for Marvel for a long time and maybe you stop connecting things that could actually help out. I actually think the connected universe, and I've said this before, brings up more complications than not. So maybe you stop connecting things a little bit, like to let things stand on their own. You can still do a Justice League movie, and you can, you know, everybody can talk about what's been going on in their world, kind of thing. But they don't necessarily have to be connected through every movie. So that's that's a thing that might happen, may or not may not happen. So we'll just have to see what happens there. Marvel has announced something pretty interesting, a new multi-platform animation franchise called Marvel Rising that's going to focus on heroes that are the next generation of Marvel heroes in the Marvel Universe. So we're talking about characters like Captain Marvel, Ghost Spider, who was Spider-Gwen, Patriot, Miss Marvel, Daisy Johnson, yes, Quake, and yes, will be voiced by Chloe Bennett, by the way, Squirrel Girl, Inferno, there's actually a much longer list. The big bad, at least in the beginning here, is going to be Hala, which is voiced by Ming-Na Wen, of course, also from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Looks like the focus here is to be on relatable heroes, you know, something for everyone, which is something that Marvel has really, really been focused on in the comics and in pretty much everything that they do. Marvel Rising Secret Warriors will actually debut later in 2018. Looks like they'll have some shorts before that, kind of like what DC Superhero Girls did. But there are a couple things here. First of all, it's nice to see Marvel finally taking their animation platform seriously outside of Disney XD. I've been beating that drum forever. Look how well DC is doing with their animated film division and the stuff that they're doing there. Why isn't Marvel trying to do more of that? And it looks like maybe this Marvel Rising project could be a way that they're going to do that. Also, another thing that makes me think here is that we just talked about last week how Marvel has 20 MCU movies they're going to be planned over the next, I don't know how many years. This could be a way for them to kind of dip their toe in the water here and say, you know, which characters stand out? Maybe it's a character like Miss Marvel. Maybe it's Ghost Spider character, formerly Spider-Gwen, that's going to stand out. We already have Captain Marvel planned, and I think she'll be a big part of being the leader of this group going forward. But which of these characters is going to stand out and be popular and make them feel better about giving them their own movie at some point down the line in live action. I'm not saying that's why they're doing this, but it doesn't hurt to gauge interest, which they don't seem comfortable doing through their comics alone. So you move characters that have been popular in the comics, give them an animation platform, and if they become more popular from there, then you start talking about live action adaptations, because the the future of the MCU has to go somewhere. I think we all agree on that. And there are certainly other options beyond these newer characters. However, wouldn't it be nice to at least have a few of these that you can pick from and say, okay, let's see what we have here. Let's see what we have there. And the risk kind of gets dialed down a little bit if that's the case because it's almost like you're getting your own focus group, but at the same time, you're getting an interesting animation project out of it as well so i think this is a brilliant move by marvel and something that i've waited for them to do for a long long time and i guess the timing was right and court lane who we had on the show for episode 100 is going to be heavily involved in this project as well so just knowing that 
I ha- absolutely have faith that Marvel Rising will be at least very interesting and intriguing in its beginning stages and can't wait to see where it goes from there. Here's something that I am not sure about at all. And this story has kind of evolved as the week has gone on. Deadline is reporting that Quentin Tarantino will have an R-rated Star Trek movie through Paramount. Apparently, this is now a done deal. This R-rated Star Trek movie is going to happen. They've agreed, Paramount has agreed, and J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot has agreed to let this thing be R-rated. Quentin Tarantino going to be directing. It looks like the Revenant writer, Mark L. Smith, is the top choice, according to Deadline, to write this movie. Now, here's my thing. First of all, whether you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino's or not, is this something we need? Like, really? I, I understand that maybe you can't keep going the way Star Trek is now. Maybe you weren't a big fan of Beyond. Maybe that wasn't something that you liked. But where do you go with this? And why force it to be rated R? And that was one of the big sticking points for Quentin Tarantino. Why force it? To be rated R. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that it's so they can drop F-bombs left and right on the bridge of the Enterprise. What I'm saying is that maybe you're pushing Star Trek to a level that it doesn't need to be pushed to. And I'm sure that there are stories that could be done. And, and you know, you maybe you're going to make them a little bit more hardcore, make them a little bit more deadly, or give it a little bit more of an edge. I'm just not sure that you want to bring that pulp fiction-y and glorious bastards kind of vibe to the Star Trek world. I just, maybe it's because I don't see a benefit to that. And and I don't know if you'd call me a purist because of that. Maybe you call me closed-minded. I don't know. But I just don't understand why. It just doesn't seem like a match to me. And this is one of those things where you don't necessarily want to grab a fan to do a movie because they're a fan. You know, just because I'm a huge Batman fan doesn't mean I should be writing, directing, producing, or being anywhere near a Batman movie, okay? So, and I don't even know how big of a Star Trek fan Quentin Tarantino is. I can assume that he is because they, you know, he came into the office and pitched this idea and everybody went bonkers over it, probably because it's Quentin Tarantino. And he certainly brings a certain level of star power. And I don't know if maybe this guarantees that we'll have Samuel L. Jackson in a Star Trek movie now. I I don't know. I don't know if we're going to find a Royale with cheese on the bridge of the Enterprise. I don't know that either. All I know is, is that something just doesn't feel right about this. In my gut as a nerd, I just do not feel right about where this practice is going to go. And I know that's a little bit unfair because I always say, you know, We should at least wait for a trailer, or we should at least wait for a synopsis. Let's give this thing a chance before we start beating it down. And I will. I will honestly give this a a chance and, you know, keep keep an open mind about it. I'm just saying that the Star Trek franchise hasn't exactly blown anybody's doors off after the initial Star Trek movie by J.J. Abrams, I wouldn't think. So this is the direction that you want to go. And we don't know, is this going to be a one-off movie? Is this going to be kind of a a reset to the franchise? Is this something we're going to have a future with? And just because Deadpool was able to do it, just because Logan was able to do it, doesn't necessarily mean that you should be doing it with Star Trek. Because you can see why Deadpool had to be rated R. You can absolutely see why Logan needed to be rated R. It was almost obvious. There's no obvious answer here to me as to why this Star Trek movie needs to be rated R. Now, I know that Star Trek Discovery has had a little bit more of an edge 
and I appreciate that. It, I don't need the hardcore language. It doesn't bother me, but I don't need it either. It doesn't add anything to this. And I'm not saying that's what it's going to be necessarily. What I'm saying is, is that you can give it edge without absolutely positively needing it to be rated R. And, and call this a shot if you want, but maybe Quentin Tarantino just doesn't know how to work any other way. Maybe he can't dial it back. And to that extent, does that mean he's going to be able to be true to the franchise? Or is this going to be a my way or the highway kind of thing? Like he's going to do his vision of Star Trek the way he wants to do it. And whether hardcore fans like it or not, this is the way he's going to have it done. I don't know. I, and it's not that I'm not a fan of Quentin Tarantino's. I've certainly liked plenty of his movies. I just don't feel like this is a fit here. I feel like we're trying to fit a round, a round piece in a square hole. I just don't know that this is a project we need or that will succeed at all. I hope I'm wrong because maybe this could be really something different and unique for the Star Trek franchise. And maybe that is what they need right now. I'm just not sure this is how they want to do it. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we'll talk to Blair Redford, who plays John Proudstar, Thunderbird on The Gifted, which we're going to talk about the fall finale. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kobe Bell from The Gifted on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of our most talked about shows from fans is definitely The Gifted on Fox, just because it's so good, and we just happen to have John Proudstar himself, Thunderbird. It's Blair Redford this week. How you doing, man? Hey, what's going on? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Hey, man, thank you for doing this. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I love about The Gifted is that it's so perfectly, it's just over the first season so far, tackling the social and societal impacts of mutants, and everything just feels so genuine on the show. So how do you feel that the show is able to kind of balance that so well with everything else that's happening in the story? Yeah, you know, man, I'm, I'm glad you say that, because that was like... That was one of the first vibes I picked up on when we started the show where, where I was like, you know, we might have stepped into something special here with just kind of the reality everybody brought to it and, and, and the groundedness. Um, I think it was just kind of like an unspoken agreement all of us actors kind of had. We just kind of realized, first of all, everyone's just good. All these actors, I mean, for nine characters uh, and, and, and growing, like everyone's just really good, but when we started working together, it just felt very real, very genuine, even with these heightened, you know, circumstances and dealing with mutant abilities and, and you know, superpowers, if you will. Um, we just kind of said, hey, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it as if it were really happening. It's all going to be human responses. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just felt good. And I think we've kind of just stuck with that tone the whole time. And it's, it's great. Great to be a part of it. Speaking of fans, now, any fan of X-Men comics knows that your character, Thunderbird, kind of died really quickly in the comics and never really had a chance to get his story told. So what has it been like to be able to kind of do that now on The Gifted and kind of rewrite history a little bit? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. Obviously, you know, if they wanted Thunderbird to die in, in two episodes, it, it would have been a whole different story. But, um, you know, I, I, think, I think our creator, Matt Nix, and our writers, they're all wonderfully talented they have a true knack for um you know paying homage to the comics and, and taking um the the bits and the pieces that they need so it feels um familiar if, if you are a fan of the original story it feels familiar so that's there for you but also you know we we're providing you with twists and turns so that you're you're not just seeing what's in the comics you're seeing a, a bit of a new spin uh, a new story so so you can go out you know on a ride with us uh, and these characters, you're not you're not seeing just the expected, uh, you know. And obviously, I, I 
uh, I'm hoping that Thunderbird's fatality rate isn't uh, <laughs> as, as near as, as, as it could be. Um, but you know, I, I think the writers really enjoy enjoy putting out putting out proud star scenes, and and uh, he's he's kind of become a nice integral part of the leadership of the underground. So. You know, man, I'm hoping to ride this out a little while longer. Um, I'm, I'm all about, you know, killing characters off. I love what Game of Thrones has done, killing off main characters. Mm-hmm. I think it's exciting. I think it keeps stories um, real to the audience when you when you believe in one face. But, uh, you know, that, that, has, that has to be a choice for every uh, show's creator to make. So, we'll you know, we'll see what happens. Speaking of the early part of the season, which you survived quite well, it seems like John was really almost unflappable in his leadership of the group. And now lately... We're starting to see him doubt himself a little, a little bit more. So, where do you think his mental state is at right now? Yeah, um, yeah, I think I think it's tough on him. I mean, it, our story picks up uh, in, a, in an interesting place. I think for the underground, where they're they're kind of feeling more heat um, and and more danger coming down on them than they've experienced in a while. And yeah, it, it was great to to kind of act this arc that John is having, where he was, uh, you know, very in control kind of militant-minded, um, stoic leader for the group. Um, but I think he's, he's really been shook up by seeing one of his, you know, his ex-Marine buddies, one of his brothers-in-arms, die, and he feels like he could have done something about it. I, I think that's really, really shaken things up a bit in, in, his, in his mind. Um, and then you have the, the events from the last episode where half of the team, you know, was, was taken prisoner and, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to them. And it's, honestly, there's two women in that in that group that he cares about a great deal. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, a, a girlfriend and, and potential girlfriend for him. You know, he's he's got some confusion on the on the romantic side of his life right now. But um, yeah, I think he's just he's seeing failure after failure. And honestly, the events are probably out of his hand if, if you look at the facts. But as as a leader um, and as you know, the, again, the, the military minded type guy. He, um, he's got to find the blame and put it on himself, I think. So speaking of that love triangle that you were kind of forced into in the show, is that something that you feel like is done, or are we going to see more of that? Well, you know, I, I, I wonder how the fans are, are taking to it. I mean, we, you know, I, I, think, I think we had to make choices when, when we were acting it. Um, we, had, we had limited knowledge of where it was going to go exactly. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it's true to life. I think uh, Thunderbird cares a good deal about dreamer and they have a past together but ultimately he 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 is a good guy so he's he's trying not to not to make any unnecessary drama within the headquarters i I think he does have um some very real and organic feelings for clarice as well but um he just sort of feels a previous bond to uh to dreamer so it's it's just being stuck between a rock and a hard place and and he's uh not really wanting to talk about his feelings, I imagine. So, it, uh, yeah, I think that's still that's that's still going on within within his own mind. And you know, I'd, I'd be interested how how the fans feel about it. I, I think they're they're hopefully they're seeing that on screen and seeing sort of the turmoil within all three of those characters. That it's an unsettled um, issue. Oh, we can tell it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> so it seems like John's actually gotten a chance to interact with pretty much everyone on the show and have some very meaningful scenes with a lot of those characters. So out of everything we've seen so far, which character interactions kind of stand out to you the most, or do you have any favorite scenes that you've done? Yeah, you know, I have a lot, and, and it has been cool to, to kind of work with everybody. Um, everybody brings, you know, some, something different to the mix, so it's always something to look forward to. But I really loved... Uh, 
two episodes ago, I think it was episode eight, um, the stuff that Thunderbird and Reed had together. Um, I thought it was just a really well-crafted ending to that episode where they both lose loved ones and uh, sort of bonded by tragedy, um, Reed bearing his father and Thunderbird bearing um, his, his best friend, uh, Pulse. Um, that was just, uh, just felt like a very epic um, closing of events for the episode. That was fun to shoot. And it was the first time, uh, personally, me and Moyer had scenes just on our own. So we were out on location and, you know, a very good friend of mine at this point. So it was just kind of, you know, the bros getting to hang out without, without the family or the other mutants. So it was, it was a fun time. Um, and then honestly, I don't know. I love, I, I really like Thunderbird's interaction with the kids too. It, it's very limited, but whenever he has something with, with Andy or Lauren, um, there's just this kind of, uh, organic place it goes where, you know, I think Andy probably looks up to the, the mutant, uh, the older mutant guys in the group that, you know, have full control of their power and they're kind of leading the underground. So I think it, it just adds a fun element there when uh, they can kind of help, help the kids out and instruct them when, uh, you know, when it's not their parents, a lot of times children are, are more, more in tune to listen to strangers that are adults rather than their parents. So I think, I think it's fun, fun scenes. No doubt about that. Talking to Blair Redford, who plays John Proudstar, a.k.a. Thunderbird on The Gifted, of course, the fall finale coming up this Monday on Fox. Now, Blair, I read somewhere, and I really hope that this is true, that you created a pirate character for a Renaissance Festival named Rusty Compass. (laughs) So I have to ask, if that is true, and if Rusty were a mutant, what would his powers have been? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Some of that is true. You got got some bullet points in there, but this, this, this story comes up a lot. Um... If he had a power, you know, it wouldn't be that far off from Thunderbird because uh, that particular pirate character was a navigator of a pirate ship. So sort of, I think, tracking and, and things like that would have come into play. But, I, you know, man, I was like seven, I was 16, 17 in high school, so I think, I think one of the, his powers probably should have been uh, not getting embarrassed not getting embarrassed around uh, high school girls coming to the, to the Renaissance Festival <laughs> scene because that was something I was probably dealing with quite often. <laughs> but uh, back, back to the show. After that failed attempt to get into Trask, we, you mentioned earlier, and some key members of the underground actually being captured by Sentinel Services, tensions have mm-hmm. got to be in an all-time high. So let's talk about the group, di- group dynamic a little bit. How would you describe the state of the group going into the fall finale this Monday? I think it's super stressful for everybody. I, I think they realize they're, they're on a really serious timetable here to, you know, they've got one mission, so they're, they're on a real uh, time crunch to come up with something else if they want to see their loved ones again. Um, I think you're going to see, you're going to see the group more hectic than they've ever been. Um, especially, you know, Thunderbird, my character, he's always, he's always very calm, well thought out, especially when it comes to, to doing any kind of dangerous mission. He likes to, he likes to have everything planned out, um, you know, again, going going to his military training, he likes to know exactly what he's getting into. But I think you're going to start seeing everyone putting their back up against the wall and, and knowing that they're going to have to start changing the way they're doing things if they're going to survive and, and if they're going to get their friends back. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a high-octane amount of energy coming into this next episode. Your character is probably one of the most trusting characters on the show as well. And i got to tell you, there's something about Esme, though. I don't know there. It just doesn't seem right. So where where is he at with her right now? Because he, I think, if I remember correctly, he literally had to carry her away in the last episode. Yes. Yes, I did. And they kindly cut out about uh, 15 more yards of how much I had to carry her the day I was shooting that. <laughs> me, and, me and Skyler, who plays Esme, got a, a 
heck of a chuckle out of that because it was about 101 degrees here in Georgia. Oh, and man. I had to do it at least 30 times, hoisted over my shoulder. And just because I play that I have superhuman strength, and I do consider myself a pretty strong individual at this point, training for this character, I do not have mutant superhuman strength. So <laughs> it, it wore me the hell out. And nothing against her. She is a tiny and lovely little lady. But um, in 101 degree weather, doing it that many times, it, it'll, it'll tire any, any man out, I guarantee it. And they only use a, a tiny bit of it, so I, I was kind of, uh, <laughs> I laughed about it. Trust me, I carry my three-year-old for 10 minutes and I'm worn out, so I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go, there you go. But, but to answer your question, yeah, I think he's, um, you know, I think he's trying to just get the facts in order. I, I think, you know, he, he would welcome a partnership if he thought, you know, there's, there's someone that can add something to the underground. That, that's his main focus is, is, I think, survival and, and the underground flourishing and, and uh, eventually becoming a normal part of society. So that's that's his main that's his main goal, I think, in, in this stage in his life, really. So I think he's holding out to see what his opinion on her is, but um, you keep watching, and very soon you will find out where his opinions go with that. One more thing before I let you go, Blair. One of the other things that the gift that has done so well this season is it feels like there's been so many shows that have been filled with big moments at the end of episodes. So uh, episodes. So it really feels like we're being set up for a major cliffhanger here. So without spoiling anything, what do you think the hashtag might be on Twitter at the conclusion of this upcoming episode? The hashtag of this upcoming episode? <laughs> uh, let's see. Let, let me take myself back in time to, to what we're going to see here. Um, oh, man, I've got to give you a hashtag that's not going to give something away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, all right, well, you, you could say, uh, <laughs> hashtag tears. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's not good. Um, uh, what else can we have? Um, hashtag what happens when mutants combine their powers. That Ooh, could be a good one. I like that. And I think that that yeah. was a little bit of a tease from something that we've already seen. So there you go. It's going to be amazing. We can't wait for the fall finale of The Gifted on Fox. It's going to be Monday at 9 o'clock, of course. That's Eastern Time. Check your local listings if you're in any other time zones. And we can't say to wait to see what's up next with this guy. It's Blair Redford, Thunderbird himself. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. I still feel tense from watching that last episode of The Gifted, so I can't imagine how much the tension is going to be this Monday at 9 o'clock with the fall finale of The Gifted on Fox. And you heard what Blair Redford just said. Hashtag tears? That could be a good thing or a bad thing, especially considering who was captured by Sentinel Services. So I cannot wait to find out what the end result of this is going to be because the gift that has been just so consistently good week in and week out, and I'm sure that this is going to be no different. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks for Blair Redford for joining me this week to talk about The Gifted on Fox, which you can always see Monday nights at 9 o'clock, or of course go to fox.com or the Fox app if you need to catch up at any point. You can catch up with our show as well by going to downandnerdypodcast.com. Find all the past shows there. Not only that, find us on social media as well, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.